Uh, as you know, we have been sketching out a spirituality for the long haul, and we've been calling this Faithful Presence. We've been walking through the letter that Paul wrote to a church long ago, 1 Thessalonians. And the gist of the series is this. God is faithfully present in every and any circumstance. You can never escape his presence. He is always faithfully present, especially with his people. And when we faithfully present ourselves to that reality, when we faithfully present ourselves to him, that's when God works in and through us, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of this world. If I was going to try to summarize uh, the past five sermons up in one long run-on sentence, I would put it like this. A long-haul spirituality is empowered by God's love sustaining us in joy as we become more like Christ in every area of our lives, not in isolation, but with our family of believers, and not only for our sake, but for the world to see the beauty of the gospel. I'll say it one more time. A long-haul spirituality is empowered by God's love sustaining us in joy as we become more like Christ in every area of our lives, not in isolation, but with our family of believers, and not solely for our own sake, but for all of the world to see the beauty of the gospel. That's the gist of 1 Thessalonians. And now that we have one more sermon, I want to address one last question. You know, our humanistic culture, the culture of Vancouver, the culture of Canada, has created a good quality of life for many. It offers us goodness and peace. And so is the spiritual life that we've been talking about actually better than what the world so readily offers us? So this is the big idea I want to explore this morning. We seek goodness and peace because what the world offers partially, God offers completely. We seek goodness and peace because what the world offers partially, God offers completely. So if you have a Bible, open it up uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. If two sentences were going to capture what Paul is trying to say here, it's this, be at peace among yourselves. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Be at peace and seek to do good. And whether or not you're familiar with the Christian scriptures, uh, this is undoubtedly a familiar call that you've heard within society. Our culture has instilled with us and hummed this tune over and over again. What is Canada on the global stage? We're peacekeepers. Who are our Vancouverites? We're good. We seek to do good. We seek goodness and peace as a society day after day. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is well articulated by Greg Epstein. Uh, he's the current humanist chaplain at Harvard, and he wrote a book called Good Without God, and in the preface, he wrote this. This is not a book about whether one can be good without God, because that question does not need to be answered. It needs to be rejected outright. To suggest that one can't be good without belief in God is not just an opinion, a mere curious musing. It's a prejudice. I think Epstein's partially right. I think um, we can indeed affirm 
pursuits of goodness and peace within the world. What we need to ask is not whether or not people who do not pursue God can do good or seek peace. It's how is what Paul is talking about here, his version of goodness and peace, how is that distinct from the goodness and peace that so many seek after in the world? So let's start here. What sort of goodness is Paul talking about? We have to remember that Paul is an ancient man who was raised by the Hebrew scriptures. He was a Jew. And so he knew the scriptures inside and out. And as an adult, he became a Pharisee. And so he knew the scriptures. So the concept of shalom would have undergirded his understanding of peace. Shalom in Hebrew is, is translated peace. Uh, one scholar, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., which is just a sweet name, uh, describes it this way. Shalom means... Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. In other words, shalom is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. But how do you enter into the way things ought to be when we live in a world where everything is not as it should be? For the ancient Jews, you entered into shalom through Sabbath keeping and law abiding. And these things would eventually usher in God's shalom. But for Paul, when he encountered Christ, it radically revolutionized his understanding of how we enter into shalom. Uh, if we turn to uh, Colossians for a moment, there Paul writes, In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Paul's vision of how we enter into shalom is not by anything we do, but by everything that's been done for us. You see, the humanist vision of peace and goodness is a belief in the human spirit that we can usher in a better world. And the vision Paul presents us is the opposite. He says God is ushering in the world as it ought to be, but through Christ's death where he made peace on the cross. Peace, which means forgiveness of sins so that we can be reconciled to God, forgiveness of sins so that we can be reconciled to one another. And the vision is big enough that Paul says, everything in heaven and on earth will be reconciled to God. Every particle. Simply put, a world that is not well is being made well and will ultimately be made well through what Christ accomplished on the cross. This is at the heart of Paul's vision of goodness and peace. And so, yes, it is quite different than the humanist vision. You know, Paul is claiming that a lack of peace in the world is not because we haven't uh, tried hard enough, but it's precisely because of the human spirit. That's why we lack a universal peace and goodness. And that that needs to be rectified. A lack of peace and goodness in the world on a universal quality is because we don't have the fullness of God in the world. And I want to be fair because much of the good and the peace we see and we experience as a society, it's legitimate. We should never look down upon efforts to seek goodness of other people and to seek peace among nations and among people. But the world at best can only offer partial peace, partial goodness. History shows us there is no way we can establish a universal peace on earth. It is not going to happen because cultures have conflicting visions of what human good and flourishing is. And this is why there isn't peace in the world, because we can't agree what good is. On the other hand, a distinctive of the Christian vision of peace and goodness 
is how it's undergirded with hope. We have to remember, Paul has just spent 16 verses spelling out our hope in Christ's return before talking about peace and goodness. And he's done this on purpose. Our hope of what Christ will do when he returns defines our understanding of peace and goodness. Roger came up with this great phrase. I'm just going to beat to death in this sermon. We become a preview people. Do you remember this? A preview people of the world to come. And so we know that the peace and the goodness that we show in our lives and that anyone can show in their lives is just a preview of what God will ultimately do, but it's just a small preview. It's not even nearly as good as the peace and goodness that is to come. And Christian hope, it doesn't make us inactive in the world. It doesn't mean, oh, we can just wait till God sets it right. No, we want previews and we want glimpses and we want to make it more evident. Our hope inspires us to seek goodness and peace because when we see those things, we're actually coming closer to the way things will be. Shalom is coming for us because Christ died for us. So we have to say, yes, Paul's vision of goodness and peace is very distinct from the human, humanist vision of goodness and peace. On some levels, they're at odds with one another, but on other levels, they confirm each other. But how does all this touch down on earth? Because I'm talking very theoretically right now. What does Paul envision for us in pursuing goodness and peace? And it starts simple. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Look around the room. This is who he's talking to, the people around you. Be at peace with each other. This is why we're starting these handshake vows. This is why we're encouraging us to not gossip behind one another's backs, but to engage in more small conflicts rather than large conflicts. Because we want to be at peace with one another. So Paul, he first addresses how the body of Christ, how the church should relate to one another. And he begins with how the church should relate to its leaders. Look again at verse 12. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I've come up with a list of 132 things you guys can do to highly esteem me in love. Uh, but rather than <coughs> read this to you, I've invited Don Lewis, actually, to handle these two verses. If you don't know Don, uh, he is a member of St. Peter's. He's been here a long time. He's a professor at Regent. He's a faithful follower of Christ, and he grew up as a pastor's kid. And while Don teaches uh, at Regent as his day job, his night job, so to speak, uh, which blends into his day job, if he's a little honest, don't worry, Jeff's not here, uh, is caring for pastors all around the world. And so I thought there's no one more qualified to speak about these verses than Don. So I'm going to hand the sermon over to Don for now. Alistair is a very uh, risk-taking pastor because he didn't know what I was going to say this morning. And perhaps I will get a phone call uh, rebuking me. But uh, I did grow up in a pastor's family, and I've seen pastoral ministry from, the, uh, from inside that context, as well as having worked in a church in the city for a time. But um, my joy is to care for pastors who I try to visit uh, fairly regularly uh, here and abroad. Let me just begin by saying I think there is a spiritual warfare going on today, a war on Christian pastors. Jonathan Edwards, in his classic work on spiritual warfare, says that our enemy has one important tool, and that weapon is to attack Christian leaders. 
and his tactics have not changed over the centuries. The statistics on clergy burnout and demoralization are simply staggering and sobering. It's clear that we're losing many in this spiritual warfare. The main point that I want to make this morning is that pastoral ministry is three things. It's demanding, it's discouraging, and it's downright dangerous. So, I might suggest that if you've been thinking about pastoral ministry for yourself, I'm here to warn you. <laughs> think again, and think yet again. A pastor in a retreat <clears throat> recently told the pastors he was gathered with that he had asked his wife what she thought the impact of his being in ministry had had on her and their 10-year-old son. And she didn't respond. And uh, he said, well, do you have any thoughts? She said, give me some time. I want to think about it. And he said, two weeks later, I asked her again. I said, dear, have you thought about what I asked you? And she said, oh, yes, I have, quite a bit. Um, before I say anything, let me just preface my remarks by saying I would never leave you, I would never be unfaithful to you, and I'd never divorce you. But on reflection, I think that my son and I would be better off if you were dead. Ooh. He said, what, what do you mean? Why would you ever say that? And she said, well, you're married to the church. The church gets the best of your energy, the most of your attention, we get the dregs, we get the leftovers. We get uh, what the church doesn't take from you. But if you were dead, we wouldn't be disappointed all the time in what we're not getting from you. Pastoral ministry is demanding. Why so demanding? Largely because congregational expectations are usually totally unrealistic and many pastors exhaust themselves in trying to meet them. One pastor in the U.S. did a survey of 12 congregational leaders, lay leaders in his congregation, and he outlined the various areas of ministry that the congregation expected him to do each week, from sermon preparation to evangelism to prayer, etc., and asked them to tell him how many hours a week he should be devoting to each of these categories. The response was, 114 hours a week would do the job, which would be 23 hours a day for five days, or about 16 hours a day for seven days, which helps to explain why 90% of pastors report working more than 50 hours a week, including part-time pastors, and 90% 90, 90 of pastors say they are frequently fatigued and worn out on a weekly basis, and even on a daily basis. A study by Fuller Seminary argue that perhaps pastoring is the single most stressful and frustrating working profession more than that of medical doctors, lawyers, or politicians. I have friends who are medical doctors, even emergency room doctors who work long hours. But at least they're only on call for 12 hours a day, if they're uh, sometimes 13 hours a day, not 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So pastoral ministry is demanding. It is uh, discouraging. Uh, pastoral ministry is often discouraging because there are so few measurables, so little short-term evidence of change in people's lives or advance of the gospel. It puts enormous pressure on pastor's emotional life and the pastor's family. It tests people 
over and over. It's also very discouraging by what people will say to pastors. Uh, after this uh, first service this morning, somebody came up to me who is from a clerical family. His grandfather was a well-known minister. And uh, he said, in our family, the saying was, people often treat their dogs better than their pastors. That's devastating. That should never be said of a Christian congregation. And yet often it is. Which helps to explain why 40 to 50% of those who are trained for pastoral ministry leave pastoral ministry within five years. If you go to the 10-year mark, between 60 and 80%, some, uh, some, in some uh, cases up to 90% of those who train for pastoral ministry are no longer in pastoral ministry after 10 years. Some, in fact, have left the church. Some have left the Christian faith. So it is demanding. It can be profoundly discouraging, and it can be dangerous. Yes, the demands of pastoral ministry can be dangerous both to individuals and to families. A good friend of mine left Regent a few years ago to pastor a church in a major city overseas. He's an American. He had had a cross-cultural experience, as had his wife before. But after two years in the new situation, one afternoon he found himself having debilitating pain in his chest and was rushed to hospital with the ambulance attendants telling him that he could be dead having what they thought was a heart attack, that he, could be, he should prepare himself for the fact that his wife and their small child uh, might have to live life without him. It turned out there was nothing organically wrong with him. It was, in retrospect, a severe panic attack that disabled him for a year and put him out of ministry. He is an excellent preacher. He's a gifted man, a godly man, able, articulate, winsome, but a casualty of ministry burnout that came out of the blue for him. The statistics on the casualties of pastoral ministry are grim reading. The net effect on marriages, pastors, families, and on congregations are devastating. Paul is deeply aware of these difficulties, which is why he exhorts believers to care for, support, and respect, and to bless those who would work as shepherds of the flock. Seven practical suggestions Seven simple takeaways that I would have. Firstly, the trustees of this church have the responsibility to care for the pastors, to see that they're well supported emotionally, administratively, pastorally, and financially. It's interesting to me that elsewhere, Paul in the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.17, says that effective pastors are worthy not of minimum pay, not of time and a half, but of double pay, double honor, is what he speaks of here. This is one of the commands of the apostles that Christians have generally ignored over the centuries. I remembered of a story from a biography of a famous uh, a Baptist pastor in the United States, Harry Emerson Fosdick, and uh, one of Fosdick's favorite jokes was of the black Baptist elder in a church at an ordination service of a young uh, young pastor was in his prayer, he said, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. That is not the biblical injunction for treating one's, one's uh, congregational leaders. Secondly, one of the critical factors that all the literature on pastoral ministry says is that pastors need to have a confidant, somebody they can be honest with and open with, and pray with who is outside of the congregation. But even more important than that is that the spouse 
of the pastor needs to have a confidant outside of the congregation whom they can talk to and unburden themselves to. And I think the board has a responsibility to see that the pastor's spouse is thriving in such a way. Thirdly, as congregants, as members of this community, we have to address our, address our own expectations and adjust our expectations of our pastors. They cannot be expected to work 114 hours a week. Be realistic. Your pastor can't expect, you can't expect your pastor to take everybody in the congregation out for lunch or know your birthday or take you out for coffee. This is simply not doable. We are all called to be ministers. We're all called to minister to each other. That's why we have specially trained people and Stephen ministers, but each of us has a responsibility to minister to each other. Fourthly, you might need to adjust your expectations of this church or, in fact, of any church that you belong to. Someone said to me recently, in any church that you go to, if, things, if you like about 70% of the way things are done, you're doing really well. That's a pretty good batting average. Not every sermon is going to change your life. Not every hymn will rock you. Not every musical set will be to your liking. Not every life group will be earth-shattering. Adjust your expectations. Fifthly, be creative in thinking about how you can show respect, support, and appreciation to your pastors. We can start by not being critical of them. The uh, handshake suggestion that we just saw is, I think, a great starting place for the whole congregation. But if you have an issue with a pastor, you need to talk to the pastor and not spread your disgruntlement abroad. But I realize I'm talking to Canadians, fellow Canadians, and we Canadians are great at being passively aggressive. We just, we have it down to a fine art, especially with our leaders, political leaders, social leaders, pastoral leaders. Instead, we need to support them in ways that we can, expressing our appreciation and affirming God's work through them among us. Sixthly, pray for your pastors every day. That would be a good start. And seventhly, pray that God would raise up new and godly pastors who would be wise, well-prepared to serve as shepherds of the flock of God whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. So as we've seen, Paul is very concerned about how we relate to one another, that we would be at peace with those who lead within the community. And to be clear, any Christian leader is one who leads by serving, coming under. But then he moves on to talking about how we seek peace about one another. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I have this phrase that I use with Julia somewhat consistently. It's, stop stirring the pot. And I say that when she brings up something that I'd rather not talk about, but no, I should talk about. I'd rather it sink to the bottom of the stew of life, and she stirs it and brings it up to the surface. And she's a counselor. That's just what she's good at. But in these verses, Paul is saying we should be stirring the pot, not for the sake of uh, making a mess, not for the sake of making problems where there weren't problems to begin with, but for the sake of peace. You know, peace is fundamentally relational which means it has to be developed and we have to be reconciled with one another. And as Don just said, I don't think it's an over-exaggeration uh, to say that this is a horrifying corrective to Canadian culture. 
Because to us, keeping the peace means not talking about it. To us, keeping the peace means saying sorry preemptively. But Paul is saying that the sort of peace that Christ offers isn't found passively. You can't just accidentally coast into the sort of peace he's talking about. It has to be actively engaged in. We have to actively engage in conflict and weakness. And here are the examples Paul used once again. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Never repay evil for evil. Paul is very aware that human weakness and frailty will get in the way of us being at peace with one another. He's not saying that we need to put on a magnifying glass to find problems. He's saying that these issues will be self-evident. And when they present themselves within relationships within the body of Christ, he instructs us how to respond. Idle, let's start with idle. That could be translated disorderly, uh, unruly, or even lazy. So in other words, when someone is relating in such a way that is evidently contrary to the ways of Christ, that their life is disorderly or they're lazy. Some of the Thessalonians decided to stop working, remember? When they're living in ways that is evidently contrary to the gospel, Paul says, admonish them. In other words, when we're falling short of the prize of Christ, when we're falling short of how he calls us to live, he says we should be encouraging one another, we should be speaking into those areas of one another's lives, but the way in which we do it should never be condemning. We should be pointing one another toward Christ, because if we're falling short in any area of our lives, and all of us we are, it's ultimately because we still have areas of our hearts that need to be reconciled to God. And so when we're falling short, when there's sin that presents itself in relationships and in ourselves, Paul says we need one another to be admonishing one another, to be pointing one another toward Christ. But then when it comes to struggles, whether it's doubts or discouragement, uh, physical illness, Paul says we're to encourage and to help. And the verbs for this are beautiful. It's literally that we come alongside one another or hold on to one another or even put our arms around one another. You see, Paul is saying peace is maintained first when we deal with sin in a healthy way, but it's also maintained when we don't look at weakness as a scourge. But when we look at all of our shortcomings and their various expressions as opportunities to bear with one another and support one another and care for one another and walk alongside one another. He says, when you actually share in each other's weakness, that establishes peace because Christ is the one who came to share in our weakness. And so when we relate to one another in that way, we are actually becoming more like Christ. And of course, the capstone is you can never repay evil for evil. And Whenever Paul speaks of evil, he has anything from small to big deeds in mind, whether it is gossiping or murder, and everything in between. Paul's saying there is never an excuse for this sort of activity in Christ, and there's never an excuse to respond to this activity with more evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. And no matter how we address sin or conflict or brokenness or weakness, he says, do it all with patience. Do it all with patience. Uh, Ansley's three and a half, and Maggie is 17 months right now, and patience is not yet a virtue in their their life. And I try to admonish them as much as I can. Uh, The other day, Maggie, uh, she's getting more confident, and just walked up to Ansley and pushed her, uh, which is like poking a bear, and that did not end well for Maggie or Ansley. But they don't have patience for one another. 
But as parents, we have to have patience. These are the sort of things that will work out over time with the right guidance, God willing. And we as Christians, when we are dealing with shortcomings within this church, say you have a handshake conversation with someone and you talk about a way they hurt you, you can't expect it to be fixed immediately just because you had the conversation. The conversation is a step toward working these things out. When Julia and I were first married, we used to have uh, very long intellectual fights and something would go wrong um, and we would talk about it for like two hours and it was not very productive, which is like a big deal for me. And we realized though, as we journeyed in marriage together, we were trying to find a way to make sure we would never do it again. And so we weren't actually talking about what went wrong. We were trying to make sure we could come up with a way to make sure we never did that thing again. And now, you know, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary this week. And now it's like, yeah, I did that wrong. I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. I might. Probably will, but I'll apologize again. Like, it's that quick, you know? Like, and what we've realized is at our best even, we can only promise that we will keep trying to follow Jesus. True peace relationally takes patience because we're broken and we're frail and sometimes the things we're working on run deeper than you can see, deeper than I can see. But then Paul concludes this part of his instructions with this capstone, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You see, in seeking peace within this room and seeking what's good for all of us, which is becoming more like Christ, he says you can't limit it, limit it to the church. It can't be constrained to just the relationships in this room or just to the people that you find it easy to relate to. He says to everyone, people you don't like, even your enemies, and everyone in this city, that you're to seek the peace and goodness of all people irregardless of their faith. Seek the peace and goodness of all people. But how do you do that? Because the bar seems to be set very hard, uh, very high. And so Paul, he gives us some practices. Look uh, at verses 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for your life. Thanks, Paul. It's a little hard to attain. Like, we don't mind the rejoicing, the praying, the giving thanks. But the qualifiers, the qualifiers, always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. And then he says, this is God's will for your life. How do we get there? Is this even possible? Our authenticity-driven culture, you know, it's positive. But if I'm being authentic, I think it has some limits. And uh, we're prone to say things like this. I don't want to rejoice unless I first feel joy. I don't want to give thanks unless I first feel gratitude, because otherwise I'm not being real, I'm being fake. I'm not being authentic. And if this is the stipulation that Paul's laying down, if he's saying that your feelings should be joyful and thankful and full of gratitude all the time, then no, of course not, we can't attain that. But Paul isn't talking so much about the experience of joy or gratitude, but the practices that help dispose us and orient us toward joy and gratitude. Nowhere does Paul ever teach that our feelings should drive our actions. Rather, he says our actions can, over time, drive our feelings. 
So let's start here. What does it mean to rejoice? Because I'm not always clear on that. I don't know about you, but what does it mean to rejoice? It doesn't mean that we put on a fake plastic smile and that we pretend like everything is well when it's not. If you know how to use a thesaurus, which I learned how to do this week, uh, you would learn that rejoice could be this. Be joyful, be happy, be pleased, be glad, be delighted, be elated, be jubilant, be thrilled. And Paul adds, always. But in what? What on earth could capture that much affection and attention? Paul's saying rejoice in who God is and what he has done. Rejoice in the fact that God has sent his son into the world to save us, to reconcile us, to make peace. Paul is saying that there is limitless joy in this reality, that you could rejoice in this over and over and over again, always, always, always. And I think what we have to say is, Lord, reopen our eyes and our hearts that we never grow tired or too familiar with the profound truth of the gospel, that you so love the world, you sent your son. You so love me that you sent your son. Rejoice in that always. You see, our hearts, they might feel numb. They might feel aloof. They might be tired or worn. But we have a choice to rejoice in the God who has shown his love for us over and over again. And sometimes our feelings might follow suit. You might rejoice and find that joy bubbles up out of your soul. Other times you might rejoice and feel nothing at all, but what God is concerned about is the rejoicing. Because Paul says these are like interrelated disciplines. When you're rejoicing, it leads to prayer. And when you're praying and you're rejoicing, it leads to thanksgiving. And then it repeats again. And Paul says in verse 18, this is the will of God for your life. Do you remember Paul saying that earlier in chapter four? This is the will of God for your life. What did he say? Your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. God's desire for you is that you become more and more like Jesus. And now Paul is connecting these two ideas. He's saying, if you wanna become more like Jesus, it'll happen this way. When you rejoice, when you pray, when you give Thanks. When this becomes your disposition, when you gather, when this is your practices personally, you will become more and more like Jesus. We could call these the folk uh, practices of our faith. I have to admit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still young as a Christian. I'm about 13 years into this. And I've been always taught, prioritize reading scripture and prayer. And I assume that giving thanks and rejoicing would be kind of the organic byproduct of those disciplines. Has anyone else had that sort of mentality that, you know, rejoicing and thanksgiving, I can't muster those things up. Uh, but over the last year, I decided, you know what? Scripture commands these things over and over again. And so I started a gratitude journal, very simply writing down at the end of the day, things I'm thankful for. And sometimes like the most I could muster up is like, thank God I've got toothpaste. But over time, and through the discipline, God has used these practices to cultivate sincere joy and gratitude in my life in surprising ways. It is transforming my life through these simple disciplines of rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. As much as I'm able, I'm becoming more like Christ. It's so simple. Paul says rejoice always, which means God desires your joy. 
Why would God command us to do something in which he has no intent to respond to? We don't say, oh, go and love your neighbor, but God's not going to give you love. Why would we have that mentality with joy? God desires your joy. If you're not convinced, learn from the Psalms. Joy and gladness appears over 150 times in the Psalms, one for every psalm. But I want to speak for a moment to people like myself who might struggle with depression physiologically. You may recall we preached through uh, Philippians, I guess like two years ago now, and uh, scholars call this Paul's letter of joy. And I managed to talk about joy in 10 sermons once. Uh, which kind of showed where I was in my mental health at that time. And I remember studying Philippians and resenting Paul every time the word rejoice came up because I felt like I had no idea what he was talking about. And so if you're listening and you couldn't even make it in today, maybe there's people listening to this sermon retrospectively, or whether you made it in today but you hear this command and you're like, I just don't have the energy. You need to know that I don't think, from my own experience and from people I've cared for, that God wants to exclude you from these practices. Maybe you can't rejoice. Maybe you're not there yet. But once a day, at the end of your day, you can say thank you for one thing, even if it's the mint in your toothbrush. That is enough. And God will use that small act, whatever you can muster, to bring about healing in your life. What's really interesting is a, recent, a few recent studies are showing that practices of gratitude and thanksgiving are, are as effective of treating moderate to severe depression as a low-dose SSRI. And when you bring these two things together, you have a powerful avenue for handling your depression. Neuroscience is actually showing, these are very interesting, the MRIs that are coming out, that practices of gratitude and thanksgiving actually rewire our brain. God has designed us to be grateful beings. He's designed us to be thankful, rejoicing beings. And while some of us have bodies that are less than cooperative when it comes to joy and happiness, we can't control the experience, but we do have the opportunity to cultivate it with these practices. So remember, Paul is speaking more about the practice than the experience. And one more disclaimer. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, but he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It's okay if certain things are going on in your life that you're not thankful for. But it's not okay if in those settings you refuse to give thanks for something. Because you can always give thanks to God for the gospel. So Paul says, if you want to grow in seeking goodness and peace in the world... Here's how you do it. Here are the practices that will empower it. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do not quench the spirit. Looks backwards and forwards. He's saying, in a way, if we refuse to rejoice and pray and give thanks, we're quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Simultaneously, if we don't allow space in our lives for God to speak prophetically, we're quenching the Spirit. And what does Paul mean by don't quench or don't uh, despise prophecies? On the one hand, uh, Scripture is prophetic by nature. This is how God has definitively spoken to his people. 
When we read this book, we can hear God's voice. He's saying, don't quench it. Don't say that I'm not able to speak through this text just because it's archaic. On the other hand, and I think this is most likely what Paul's talking about, he's talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy in which the Holy Spirit gives people images or words or messages for the whole body of Christ's upbuilding and encouragement and sometimes exhortation. That God the Holy Spirit so loves and cares for us that he will speak to us for the sake of our building up so that we can abstain from every form of evil. But Paul qualifies it. Test everything. Test everything. So if someone has a prophetic word, we have to weigh it against Scripture. Does it contradict anything that God has previously said? Is it for our good? Would it encourage any sort of evil? This is why at St. Peter's, pretty much in every service, we say, hey, if you feel like God is speaking to you, if you have an image or a word or a message, come speak to one of the pastors. And we'll discern if that's something we want to share with our community. This is our way of applying this text. And that we will discern if this is truly God speaking for the sake of our community. But since every prophecy needs to be tested, it keeps us from getting weird. You see, no one has permission to ever walk up to someone and say, Thus saith the Lord, and then lay it out. At most, you could say, I think the Lord might be saying. At most. Sometimes I've found the best thing to do is to just say it. And if it's actually from the Lord, the people will be like, wow, that God's speaking to me. You don't need to declare it's from the Lord if it's from the Lord. And Paul's saying, because of our frailty, because we're broken, we have to test these things. But we shouldn't despise them. We shouldn't limit what God might want to do in our midst. Now, <clears throat> this passage has a lot of instruction uh, here, here's the list of all the things we're supposed to do uh, according to Paul. Not that. That's, that's Corinthians. <laughs> I'll just start reading it. And there we are. To do. Uh, respect those who labor among us. Be at peace with each other. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Always seek to do good. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Abstain from every form of evil. Got it? Good to go for the rest of your week? <laughs> Feeling relieved? <laughs> this isn't where Paul ends. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul takes all the pressure off. He says, all of these things I'm talking about, I'm talking about because I know God is faithful. And these things are a preview of what he's doing in your life. So you don't need to focus on all the commands because God is faithful and he will do it. His desire is to sanctify you completely, that you would grow more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus every single day until the day of Christ's return where he will sanctify you completely through and through 100%. He's faithful and he'll do it. You see, why I think the spirituality for the long haul is worth it 
is because the goodness and the peace that we get glimpses of here and now, we are given this promise. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Shalom is coming for us. A world that is wrong will be set right. The world can only offer partially, but God promises completely. That promise makes it worth it. And you know you have a spirituality for the long haul, if that's what you want. You say, I want the complete promise, not just the partial. The here and now can only offer partially what God will ultimately offer completely. And we just have to open our hands to him because he's faithful and he'll do it. And that truth, when it gets in our bones, how can we not rejoice? How can we not pray? How can we not give thanks? And how can we not seek goodness and peace for all people, especially those in this room?